iHeartRadio presents Inside the Studio. I'm your host, Joe Levy. This time out, we road tripped down to Nashville to talk with Garth Brooks. Garth told me about volume three of his anthology series, which includes his new Triple Live album. And we also talked about his recent concert for 84,000 people at Notre Dame Stadium. And he shared details about the stadium tour he's kicking off next March, as well as the studio album he's releasing next year, which he hasn't gotten around to giving a name to yet, despite the fact that he released a single from it, a rocking bit of honky-tonk called All Day Long, last June. Right now, the the basic working title is The Fun Album. Just a lot of fun on this record. It is untitled on Amazon. Yes, it is untitled. Drives them crazy because everything's data. They know exactly. But this one just hasn't been named yet. So so far, it's the fun album because... It's all about fun. There's a cowboy song on there, a song called That's What Cowboys Do. And uh, there's a song on there called uh, Party Gras. And just talking about how Mardi Gras for us guys, I've never heard this term before. It's just a honky-tonk and Halloween. And that's what it is. And so it's just fun. It's real Cajun, very Zydeco. But yet at the same time, it's real country. And I think that's what I do. So my thing is, you never chase. Whatever's cool today, congratulations for who's cool. But you got to be true to who you are. Because the last thing you want to do is walk out the door going, okay, let's go over this. Who am I today? The greatest gift I've ever been given by the people that come to see us is they have allowed me to be me and be okay. They recognize you as a human being. The greatest compliment I read, I was walking with the four ladies are going to remain nameless. I was walking with them. And one of the girls, the one who has never said anything, she goes, you know, you always just appear to me as one of us that just got lucky. Sweetest thing anybody's ever said to me. You're just one of us that got lucky because that's how I feel. Meaning you're still you. You're still a regular person. Yeah, I'm, I'm still the, the guy that's just full of flaws. And it's okay. We met Garth at the house where he has his offices and also two studios, both of them brand new, for himself and his wife, Trisha Yearwood. He came to the door holding a baseball bat and wearing batting gloves, and he got us something to drink right away, made sure we were settled in. So for a superstar who's told tens and tens of millions of albums and also set a record for North America with his last tour, he did seem pretty much like a regular guy. Of course, he's not. When he greeted us, he'd stepped out not from backyard batting practice, but from working on the upcoming CBS television special of that concert at Notre Dame Stadium he'd played just a few days before. And as for that bat, Brooks is not just a baseball fan. During his 13-year retirement from touring, he reported for spring training three times with the Padres, the Mets, and the Kansas City Royals. If you're keeping score at home... He went 1-for-39 with the Padres and the Mets, which is a .025 average. But he did get one hit with the Royals. His music stats are just a little bit better. He's the best-selling artist of the SoundScan era. He's tallied more than 70 million in the U.S. since 1991 when SoundScan started. And in fact... 16.6 million of those sales are of his second album alone. Roping the Wind holds the title as the best-selling album of the SoundScan era. Two years ago, 
The Recording Industry Association of America certified Brooks as the first artist with seven diamond albums. That's 10 times platinum, or 10 million apiece. And when he did return to touring in 2014, he did it in a big way. His three-year world tour with Trisha Yearwood sold more than 6.3 million tickets. He played 390 concerts in 79 cities. Brooks went into arenas, playing four or five shows in most of them, sometimes filling them for two shows a day, and finishing with seven nights in Nashville at the Bridgestone Arena. It stands as the biggest North American tour in history. When Brooks tours next year, he'll be marking the 30th anniversary of his self-titled debut album, which pretty much laid out all the ways that he'd both draw on country tradition and open up the new frontiers that helped create the context for most of country music today. Brooks grew up on country, but also on 70s hard rock like Kiss and Queen, and singer-songwriters like James Taylor and Dan Fogelberg. For sure, you can hear that singer-songwriter influence on the dance from that first album. Looking back On the memory of The dance we shared Beneath the stars above You can hear it so clearly that Brooks hesitated to even record it, worrying that it wasn't country enough, and then watching it go to number one on the country charts. But if you give the more straight-ahead country weeper Alabama Clay a headphones listen, you can hear the rock side of Garth as well. His neck was red as Alabama Clay But the city's As he explains in the first volume of Anthology, a deluxe repackaging of his first five albums in a hardcover book that tells the stories behind each of the songs, the foundation of Alabama Clay, Brooks calls it the carpet, is a guitar running through a Rockman headphone amp, an invention of Tom Schultz of the band Boston that pretty much makes your guitar sound like Boston. If you listen to Alabama Clay with all the harmonies, says Garth, Here comes Journey. Here comes Queen. What you're singing about is country as a biscuit. That is Garth talking, not me. I don't use phrases like country as a biscuit. But anyway, what you're singing about is country as a biscuit, but it works. Even if you put the Boston Big Crunch in, it is still going to be country. So you can turn up your guitar and still be country. Those lessons resonate in country music to this day. What Brooks accomplished building off that first album is pretty much mind-boggling. Not just the sales, which are legit mind-boggling, but the music itself. He could draw on country's storytelling tradition, in which the narrative and detail of a feature film can be packed into three minutes of music to sing about both vengeful wives and murderous husbands in songs like The Thunder Rolls and Papa Loved Mama. But he also sang about equal rights, regardless of race, gender, or sexuality, in We Shall Be Free. He made Billy Joel sound like the Eagles when he covered Joel Shameless. Then he added fiddle to an Aerosmith song, The Fever, a few years later. He did classic country like Two of a Kind, working on a full house in American Honky Tonk Bar Association 
but he also got all singer-songwritery in ballads like The River. And really, that's just scratching the surface. You know a dream is like a river, ever changing as it flows. And the dreamer's just a vessel that must follow where it goes, trying to learn from what's behind you. I haven't even mentioned Friends in Low Places yet. Or the fact that Garth had a number one country hit with a cover of Bob Dylan's To Make You Feel My Love 10 years before Adele got a hold of it. When the rain's blowing in your face And the whole world is on your case I would offer you a warm embrace To make you feel my the anthology series, put together by Brooks with help from Warren Zanes, the former guitarist of a band called the Del Fuegos, who went on to write a really good biography of Tom Petty a few years ago, functions as an oral history of Garth's life and career, told by Garth and those alongside him. The latest volume, again a hardcover book packed with five CDs, is particularly rich and well-constructed. It tells the story of Garth's growth as a live performer, and it begins with the 1997 HBO concert broadcast, HBO's first ever with a country performer, when Brooks played to a crowd of 980,000 people in Central Park in New York City. And then it goes back to his childhood, his college years, his first stabs at playing music professionally, and his explosive popularity in the 1990s, when his albums, live shows, and television special made country the biggest commercial power in American popular music. One of my favorite details comes in the mid-80s when Brooks was touring Oklahoma as a member of the band Santa Fe. As he explains it, Santa Fe loved Southern rock and Brooks loved George Strait, perhaps the greatest of the neo-traditional singers who put honky-tonk values back at the center of country music in the 1980s. We went into these dance halls, explains Brooks, and it was exactly what those places needed because during the breaks from the live band, the DJs would be playing rock and pop. We brought the rock and roll feel right into the live set. They also set records on beer sales. So today, when you hear Florida Georgia Line integrating hip-hop and pop into their country sound, they're expanding on the lessons Brooks picked up in the dance halls of Oklahoma, playing with Santa Fe, and then put into his music moving forward. When Kenny Chesney packs stadiums with his country meets Jimmy Buffett vibe, well, he's drawing on how Brooks transformed country with his Queen vibe or his James Taylor vibe. And you could say the same thing for Taylor Swift, who seems to have soaked up some business lessons from Brooks. He owns his masters and he remains very cautious about digital music. His music now streams and is downloadable through Amazon but only because Amazon last year absorbed the online music store that Brooks himself had launched in 2014. Early on in Anthology Part 3, Garth describes the stage as a pulpit. You're either seen from it or you're watching it, he says. And as you're about to hear, he does sound a bit like a preacher when he starts talking about music. I think the only other artist I've ever spoken with who is as compulsively quotable and as intensely passionate about the dynamic between the audience and the performer, is Bruce Springsteen. So without further ado, church is in session. And the sermon this week? It's pretty good. 
Garth Brooks, welcome to Inside the Studio. Thank you. So we're, we're actually inside your studio. Yeah, so let me welcome you inside the studio. We have got a lot of ground to cover. Got a, a new volume of Anthology, Anthology yes. 3, which has your new live album, Triple Live. We've got your upcoming stadium tour, your upcoming studio album. But let's start with a show you played just recently at Notre Dame which was filmed for something else upcoming. Yeah, the CBS upcoming special. CBS special right. in December. And this turned out to be um, a bit of a neither rain nor sleet nor snow nor heavy winds can stop Garth Brooks from his appointed rounds. It was one of those things where you were worried that the weather was going to take front stage, center stage. And then right before showtime, everything just kind of went on hold. Day started off with nice weather. Yep. Temperature drops. Right. You start to get rain and then hail and then snow. Snow, right. So it was <laughs> it was like a typical day in Ireland. It was cool, man. So the greatest days start with the night before. Friday night, we do this thing called student sound check. It's a new tradition that we'll have with the stadium tour. Any students with student ID get in free. And uh, faculty and staff have to pay like a $10 fee to get in. And then all that money goes back to a scholarship for the college we're playing. So we were expecting, what, maybe 500, 600 would have been fantastic. 3,300, 3,400 people shows up, this thing. So all of a sudden now Soundcheck becomes the concert, and it was great. And it kind of set the tone for the whole weekend, and it was miserable that night. Misty, rainy, everybody was soaking wet in the stands, on the stage, but nobody seemed to care. And that kind of set the whole attitude for the weekend. What made you pick Notre Dame? Well, Notre Dame kind of picked us. We were supposed to take this year off. And a guy named Rob Beckham at WME called me one day and he goes, I know you're taking the year off, but there's a phone call I think you're going to want to take. And uh, just due to music business mergers, everything that's changing always, now some of the most prolific colleges in our history are opening up for the first time ever to have concerts in their stadium. And Notre Dame was the first one to make the call. So there had never been a concert in that space before. Never. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool. And they, when you, the sweet thing was they're the nicest people on the planet at Notre Dame. But immediately you realized they've never had a concert because none of them knew anything about concerts. So it's pretty good. You got to hold their hand. They got to hold our hand because we don't do stadiums. And it was a good marriage. So good that right in the middle of everything, right in the middle of the concert that night, it was like, you know what? It only makes sense. We had 45,000 tickets into the on sale, 30 minutes into the on sale. We still had 60 some thousand people in the waiting room. So you were not able to do another show because these are just unique individual shows. They were so sweet, so good during the show that I said, I'll tell you what, let's just make a date. And right there, and trust me, I know all our people were having a heart attack. So we're going to start the stadium tour in Notre Dame, and we're going to end the American leg of it back in Notre Dame. And we'll come full circle. I was just talking to some of your team here, and that announcement came as a surprise. Was that a spur-of-the-moment thing for you? Yeah, just anybody that's listening that gets to do this for a living, put Notre Dame on your list greatest community, greatest sounding stadium on the planet. It's heaven. You know, and, and feel the dreams that, hey, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. It's Notre Dame is heaven when you get to play music. So you called that Audible on stage. You routed the tour right then and there. And it's really interesting how the book portion of it functions as an oral history of your life, because it's telling the story of you as a performer, going back to the very, very beginning. But one interesting thing that stuck out to me was I forget who said it, said, you get a set list. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you ever see Pirates of the Caribbean? 
They're not rules. They're more like guidelines. <laughs> That's what a set list. So, so is that still the case? You're going to call audibles. Yes. Yeah, well, it's all we did in Notre Dame because it's ever changing. If you've ever been to a Gar show, the one thing you're going to know more than anything is the guy that's name is on the marquee is not the boss. It's the people in the seats. Mm -hmm. They're the boss. Where they want to go, we go. So it makes it fun for us. So instead of the fiddle player knowing, well, this is what I do. I'm going to grab my fiddle here, grab my fiddle. The fiddle player is holding both the guitar and the fiddle in his hand looking at you because he knows <laughs> he's ready. The lighting guy, the lighting guy is telling all the guys, stand by. Stand by because I get a feel. Boom, we're going to a different song. And everything now is so computer programmed with video and media. Those guys in the back room are going crazy when you change things up, but they handle it so well. It's interesting. Anthology 3, you tell the story that each step along the way is you going to school. Amen. Going back to one thing that really stuck with me was you talk about how you're a bouncer. And as a bouncer, you learn which songs pack the dance floors and which ones don't. Right. Where is school for you now? School just started at Notre Dame. I could fill up three legal pads with what I learned in two hours on that stage. Everything from which way the grading and the flooring is going on, everything from that to where the points go out as opposed to the clusters. You're just taking notes the whole time while the crowd is spurring you on to just go crazier, wilder, deeper, under bigger, better. The crowd should live in the moment, but the entertainer should live in the moment before. That's where you live. Because if you can surprise them, they will surprise you. So you were talking about where the points go. You're talking about the layout of the stage, right? You now, do I have this right? You had a whole new stage for the Notre Dame show, which you're scrapping and building another stage for the stadium tour. Yeah, the Notre Dame show was supposed to be the blueprint for it. But what we did with Notre Dame was we realized all the things that work really well and the things that don't. And what are some of those things? Give me an example. What, so, what wasn't working? So let's take the Cowboy Star. So the Cowboy Star looks like a star on a badge, right? So at one point, the point is going to be facing 50-yard line, one side of the stadium. But the other side has two legs on it that neither one of them face the middle of the stadium. So never are you getting to play to more than 50% of the audience at any time in the round. That was a big lesson. So now replace it with a Mariner star, which points north, south, east, and west. Elongate your east and west because the field is longer than it is wide. And now you're getting closer to everyone. Because the whole thing with us is it all starts with the very first premises. We don't golden circle. You don't pay more to be on the floor than you do at the very top of the stadium. It's all luck of the draw. When you see somebody sit, if you're up high and you see somebody sitting on the second row, they just got the luck of the draw mm. in the computer when a flag went down for the ticket on sale. Every ticket, the same price. And that's something that we've always had. You've always done that. Never done the golden circle where the closer the stage, the more expensive it gets. No offense against people that do that. It's just never been our thing because it just makes the crowd one family. So you've always kept it. Every ticket is the same price. Sure. There's a philosophy on merchandise, too. For me, we didn't come for money. So anything you can ever get that you feel like you got to steal on or bargain on, it fits better, it tastes better, all that stuff. Hmm. So it's pretty cool, man. You, so you do your merch. You do it out of 100% cotton, so it's going to last forever. I see those shirts 20 years later at concerts. I see those shirts on eBay. They look brand new still. 
So that's what we do. And they're not 50, 75 bucks a piece or 25 bucks a piece, something like that. And it's cool. My thing is, as an entertainer, you're what they call working, okay? This has never been work <laughs> ever, okay? Last time I worked, I was roofing houses when I was 23. This is, you come out of the hole and they look at the ticket. They see the price. They look at the stage, the lighting rig, everything, and they go, Holy crap, show hadn't even started yet, and I feel like I got my money's worth already. Now, when you come out of the hole, that crowd's happy. That crowd is not sitting there going, okay, you better make this worth it. Never. And when you get to come out to there, it turns to a party like that, and then the party goes all night long. It's fantastic, man, because you're never playing a gig for the gig itself. You're always playing the gig for the next time you come back. You want to be invited back. And I have shamelessly, at the end of concerts, had such a good time, like in Notre Dame, and just pretty much invited myself back because I'm having the best time in the arena or in the stadium. You were just talking about that feeling you get when you, you come out of the hole. You come, yeah. you come up to the stage. Do you still get nervous? Because there's an interesting moment Anthology 3, the very start of it, starts Central with the Park. HBO special yes. in Central Park in 1997. And there is documentary evidence. There's photos where you say, I looked white as a ghost. And indeed, there's photos of you backstage before you go on. And you do not look well, brother. No, I don't. I was scared to death. I mean, literally scared to death, shaking. And uh, this is kind of what you do for a living. So you think you're going to be okay. The problem was I didn't want to see the audience before you saw me see the audience. Because it's live TV and I want all those reactions. What I didn't plan on was walking toward the stage. The Parks guy's with me. He hands me a note. I said, what this? He goes, this was 90 minutes ago. This was the count 90 minutes ago. I do the note. The note says 850,000. And I look at him. I said, you're telling me we have 850,000 people out there? He goes, no. I'm telling you 90 minutes ago, you had 850,000 people. And man, when when you look, I'm, I'm a, my town's 17,000 people when we moved there. Okay, my town's now a bedroom community of Oklahoma City. It's a lot bigger. But I'd never seen that many people in my life in one place. And it scared the hell out of me. I'll be honest. And it took the whole show for me to even kind of absorb it. There's a lot of things when I see that show now that I don't even remember because you're just so damn scared. And you still get nervous coming on stage? Yeah, that's the fun part, though, isn't it? You it's tell the me. fun part. I don't know if you ever do like... Water slides, anything like that. You're scared to death standing up there. But as you go, it's the most fun thing on the planet. Well, imagine that getting to be new every time. And there's only two things in my life that are like that. Music is new every time. And Miss Yearwood is new every time you see her. And uh, those are the things that bring you joy. You know? Let's talk about how touring has changed for you over the years, because... When you go out next year, you're going to be celebrating a 30th anniversary. Right. Now, I want to go back to something you talked about in the anthology about your first tour in 1989. I'm going to quote you here. I love getting in a van with a bunch of stinky guys. Laugh your ass off. Go to a club. <laughs> eat shitty food that's been there three days. The bologna has the rainbow on it. And then the girls show up for the boys and the band to play for. It's the greatest thing. Yes, it is. So imagine the food's gotten a little better. Ah, uh, Yes. But it's still for the girls, isn't it? I mean, it just is. I mean, the, the thing about music that people don't understand, which I get, you don't get into this thing for money. 
Because well, if you do, is, you're, you're shit out of luck most There times. is none, right. There is no money when you start this thing. So when these guys come in and they want to make big business deals and they throw the money around, you look at them and go, that's flattering. I'm humbled. But the truth is, have you seen the stars born? When he looks at her and says, you're going to have to dig in your soul and find your legs. Why are we doing what we're doing? So if you're going to come and throw money around, great. That's, that's fabulous. But what are we doing? Are we doing something that's going to define the time? Something like that? That's what I want to be a part of. I think that's what we all want to be a part of. But what things have changed? I mean, these songs, some of them have been with you for yeah. 30 years. How does the songs change for you? I'm not sure that they do, to tell you the truth. The, the thing all starts with the seed. And the seed for here was Alan Reynolds, the producer and the mentor. And his goal was, he told me this when we first started. He goes, my goal is for you to look at that set list. Hmm. And the song that you're singing doesn't sound anything like the song you just sang or the song that's coming after it. And when you look down there and you see the thunder rolls and you're playing the thunder rolls, you go, this isn't anything like rodeo. And it's sure nothing like We Shall Be Free, which is coming up next. And after We Shall Be Free is much too young to feel this damn old, that doesn't sound like anything we've done yet. He did a great, great job that way. So you do interviews uh, with people all the time that, might not really know who you are or they're doing it because that's their job for their magazine or whatever. And the one question they continue to ask is if there's one song you wish you never had to sing again, what would it be? Cause they always want you to say friends in low places, but what they don't understand is I haven't sang friends in low places in 25 years. I play the first chord and I watch the rest, <laughs> the rest of the performance. It's, it's a joy, man. By bringing the crowd to the music and by bringing the music to the crowd, it gets, if you've ever seen a Gar show, it gets to where you don't know who the entertainer and who the fan is. It certainly is that way now, right? I mean, the crowd can do most of the job for you. They always have. And it didn't matter if there was nine of them in the crowd. There's 900,000. They still do the job for you. They, Because we just all want to come and sing, don't we? It's my favorite thing at a show. I don't show. know if you want to hear me sing, but okay. <laughs> I do, man. I do want to hear you sing because it's the voice of your soul. That's what singing is. It's the voice of hope. It's the voice of love. And I truly think if God sat down there and he opened his mouth, you would hear music. Well, you know, you're talking about the voice of hope, the voice of love, and you just mentioned We Shall Be Free. Yeah. And I want to ask you about that song. It's from 1992. And for a long time, it felt like we were traveling towards the, the wishes of that song. Yeah. Racial and sexual equality and all the other things. And there are moments now where it feels like we're traveling back. Right. You know, like it feels like we're more divided than ever. Right. How does it feel like that song or People Loving People, a more recent song exactly. from 2014? How do those songs play for you now? They play the same now, if not more relevant, if not more needed to be heard than ever right now because here's the thing i don't buy into what's going on right now i think what's happened is someone has given a microphone to the extremists to the 0.001 percent of us the far left the far right and social media has given a mic to them that other 99 percent of us that live in the middle are still here we're here i get to see them every night thank god and they come and they hug each other and they'll come with a Red Sox jersey on and a Yankee jersey on, and they got their arms around each other, 
and they're singing. Because for me, music is the bridge. And so that, that's what it's all about. So we can talk about all day about how bad a shape we're in. I'm telling you, when it comes down to the cutting time, we'll show up. And we're the same country we always were. We love one another. We'll pick on each other. But somebody outside picks on us. Good luck to them because we'll stand together. I mentioned before one thing I really liked about Anthology 3 is it tells the story of your life. By talking about you as a performer, going way back, going through your college years, back to your childhood, when you were performing with your family. So we did this thing called Talent Night at the house once a week. Mom would disappear one night out of the month to go sing at the Moose Lodge. Right. Yeah, that's how mom kind of still got her fix to sing and still was a mom of six kids. Because she used to, she toured with a swing band and stuff before she had children when mm. she was a teenager. But once the kids started coming, mom had to put it away for us. And I think that was one of the greatest joys of my life was for Christmas when she got a tour bus and said, Mom, anywhere we're at, anytime, here's your driver. You can tell us you're coming, not just show up. And man, they lived on the road. They were gone. They were touring all the time. And it was the greatest time of my life as far as a son because my sister was out, my brother was out with us. Our mom and dad was out there. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was heaven for me. Those family nights that you were mentioning, what kind of stuff would you be singing then? Well, the crazy thing is, man, uh, you know, we do music and sports. That's what our family does. Hmm. So we have All-Americans, we have All-Staters, and I was never one of those. So I'm going to tell you it's the same way in music. We have some of the greatest musicians, greatest singers, and I ain't one of them in our family. And it all spawns from my dad was a great musician. And my mom was, I'm going to put her in the top five female voices I've ever heard in my lifetime. That's where you learned to sing, do you feel? That's where school started, mm. for sure. Mm. Mom, always. Then Betsy was the consummate entertainer. So you learned a lot from there. So before I ever picked up a guitar, I had so much of it in my head that playing the guitar was kind of like just a formality of where I guess it was heading. But I always thought I was going to be a professional athlete because I always thought I was better than I was. The only thing that kept me from being a professional athlete was my athletic ability or lack of, you know. And so uh, so it was college when you realized, okay, real life's now is waiting. You're not going to be a professional athlete. What are you going to do? And got my degree in advertising. I thought I was going to be an advertiser and ended up one credit hour short of graduating and had to go back and started playing music to support myself. You say college is where you realize real life is waiting, but there are also these stories in Anthology 3. There's a great story from Ty England saying, I met him, I was living two floors up, started playing music, and we used to put a blanket on the windows so we could go all night into the day and just keep playing music. Right. So that doesn't sound like real life was there quite then. Well, you know, college is that thing where you can run from real life, but once you graduate or get out, you got no excuses left. The difference, the the problem that killed Ty and me was I was a senior and he was a sophomore. So I had the routine down. I had all my classes in the afternoon. Ty had those 7 a.m. classes that once you play till 5 a.m. just playing music, you ain't <laughs> going to get up for the 7 a.m. ones. So his dad yanked his butt out of college because his grades were horrible and took him back home uh, to Oklahoma City. But the, again, there it is. There's another year of my education. It's Ty England. You're walking around with a guy that's a beautiful young kid, fantastic guitar player, unbelievable voice. Anywhere we'd go, with, hey, Garth, great. But that kid right there, that Ty kid, he can sing. So it was school for me. 
I enjoyed our time together, learned a lot, and it only made sense that me and him would be buddies when we launched out as a solo artist uh, for Capitol Records. So let's talk about Triple Live, the uh, sequel, I guess, to Double Live. Yes. And commemorates the 2014-2017 tour. 390 shows, 79 cities, yeah. 6.3, or is it 6.4 million I don't, I don't tickets know. sold? It was a bunch of voices. It was beautiful. I, I always say, if you've ever seen an interview from me, I can't call them fans. And you sure as hell can't call them tickets. You can't call them customers. Voices, because I hear every one of them. I've read tell that you have incredible recall on on the shows you've played yeah i mean it's the same way if you hang around baseball players they can tell you what the count is where they're at all and they play you know 180 games a year and you're like i don't know how they do that but music yeah it all just comes back to you if somebody says land over maryland in the u.s air arena i remember it was the sickest day of my life remember those things uh, so you know you're talking the uh the beach wagon in myrtle beach there's a lot of things that went on there that we can't even talk about but you remember them like they were yesterday even though they were the clubs that held 200 maybe people all the way up to the stadiums that you know that the people just went on forever triple live there's a few new songs uh, yes. From recent records, but there's one I want to ask you about your version of an Ashley McBride song. Ah, yes. For her, it's Girl Going Nowhere. For you, it's Guy Going Nowhere. Right. What made you want to do that song? Well, when you first hear it, it's like uh, if you hear and people go, Are you kidding me? You're going to compare these two songs? Yes, I will compare these two songs Guy Going Nowhere and Turn the Page. They're road anthems. If you've done this for a living, you've lived Turn the Page and you've lived Guy Going Nowhere. And she just, she nailed it. I just took it to kind of apply to me. She took it to apply to her. So her lyrics, a little different. And so when we did this thing live and it got the response, I couldn't believe it. This will tell you what kind of song it is. There's a sign in Notre Dame, 85,000 people. And you don't want to stop this show. You don't want to slow it down. You don't want to slow it down. You sure don't want to slow it down with a ballad. And you sure don't want to slow it down with a ballad they've never heard. And you play it at Notre Dame Stadium, and it got so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. And on the things that she put in that song where you want the crowd to respond, they responded like they had heard it their whole life. That's a mark of a great song. It's a mark of a great songwriter. And you talk about Ashley McBride. She does singing and songwriting better than anybody. This is a song about being told you're going to go nowhere as a country singer. And then when you hear the crowd, when the lights come up, you feel like you're in your place. Yeah, I, um, this will be a little tough for me. My dad, my dad and my mom were my biggest fans. They really were. But my dad was very much a realist, the same way I am with my children. So he wouldn't squash your dreams. He's just going to tell you, if you're really going to dream like that, it's a hell of a lot of work. I don't know if you want to put that much work into it kind of thing. And uh, he said, Garth, why in the world are you moving to Nashville? I said, Dad, I'm going to tell you, I got people that come and watch me when I play, and they just say, you need to pursue this. And I'll remember his words the rest of my life. He says, Garth, they tell everybody that. Yep, you're right. They do. You're right. But I'm going to believe them to fill in the confidence I don't have in myself. I'm going to take the confidence they have me. We're going to pack up. I'm going to go. I'm going to try it. And... uh Really, really glad I did. Obviously, there comes a point down the line where you must have had a follow-up conversation 
No, my dad was always a realist. I remember telling dad, I said, dad, I said, I don't even know how to tell you this, but we just put on our first kind of big outdoor concert. I said, dad, we, we sold 23,000 tickets to this thing. He said, congratulations, bud. But never forget, that's 23,000 people you could disappoint. It's like, <laughs> holy cow. I never saw the other side of the coin. Hmm. So what he was saying, I 100% believe what he was saying. Do your homework, study, be ready for it. The victory did not come in the selling of 23,000 tickets. The victory comes by those people walking out of that stadium going, if that guy comes back here, I'll be here. And that's what he taught me. You know, it's funny, going back to Anthology 3, there's a moment where you talk about being on tour and losing touch Mm -hmm. with your own music. Canada. And the advice you get. From Alan Reynolds. Is, are you listening to the songs you're singing? God, could it be that simple? Could it really be that simple? We're in Canada. We're making the run across northern Canada. So it's all the greatest towns to play to. So it's Winnipeg. It's Edmonton. It's Calgary. Great places to play. But I cannot find it in my soul for the life of me. So I don't know if we talk about this in the anthology. If we don't, I should have. I put a bounty on my own head to try and get things jumped up. And it was a $500 bounty for anybody who could knock me on my ass during the show. Yeah, this comes up. Oh, does it? Okay. This comes so up. This was is fun. kind of version of hockey exactly. on stage, right? <laughs> exactly. So it was just to get everybody fired up. And we had fun and it was moving around. But still, no matter all the tricks and no matter how you dress it up, if it ain't burning inside, there's this cold air that comes out when you sing. And so I called Alan Reynolds. He said, Alan, I'm not done. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm tired or what. And Alan Reynolds goes, are you listening to what you're singing? And what do you mean? They, they want the thunder rolls. We played exactly the same. He goes, but are you listening, man? That night I listened to the lyrics of Much Too Young. It took me back to sitting on that. There was a coffee table in a house in Stillwater, no chairs around it. We're on our knees, sitting there scribbling on notebook paper writing much too young when randy taylor looks at me and goes i just want a line that says a worn out tape of chris will do that's all i want and it all brought it back and man everything came with it too once that fire starts burning then the whole arena started to get on fire and uh, i have not looked back since that day i have never had a cold spell or a dry spell since 390 shows some of them were 14 16 and in 12 days you were doing two shows a day in some of these places. You were doing matinee shows, which used to be, you go back to the 1960s, that's the way it was done. Right. Even in the 70s, the Stones played two shows a day on their 72 tour, but nobody does that anymore. Yeah. But I got to tell you, there was one of those shows that was just another show. Never was. All because of that talk. And that is the power of the song. And when people go, what's the future of music or music business? We have no future if it's not for the song. Okay. Since you brought up the future of the music business, albums are streaming on Amazon now, but you've resisted the streaming era. Mm -hmm. And you still want people to interact with your stuff as albums. Sure. How long are you going to hold out? Oh, you got to, you got to hold, it's it's who I am. So it's, it's just who I am. All streaming does is become, for me, and and no offense to anybody, but this is my opinion, streaming just simply becomes background music for whatever you're doing. It's not the reason why you do what you do. There's going to be people that find music and find songs, but the truth is let's define what music is. 
A radio single is the song that pisses the least amount of people off. It's safe. It's commercial. Fair enough. And I've got songs like Unanswered Prayers. i got songs like The Change that were singles that I think are the most important pieces I'll ever speak as an artist. But what is that song when you have the barrel of the gun in your mouth that you hear that makes you stop, makes you think? If you're anybody that's 30 years old or older, it was album cuts. It was the things that weren't safe. They were the things that really took the music and the lyric into your world. Those things are here, and those things are important to hear. So you sit down to listen to Hotel California. There's a single on there called Hotel California. The album is called Hotel California. And for me, it's 30-something minutes of just righteousness, of highs, lows, turning it up. There's not a greater song for me. There's that room where all the great songs live. Life in the Fast Lane might be the perfect rock and roll song. But Pretty Maids All in a Row? Are you kidding me? Just as equally strong, as equally as important. One was a single and one was not. Hmm. But yet, both affected my life. So my thing is just, what the album does is give the artist a voice. When you look and you've listened to 100 songs and it's 100 different artists, you have a chance of losing what an iconic artist is. We're expecting another studio album from you next mm-hmm. year. All Day Long is the song we've heard from it, but that's been out since the summer. Yep. What can you tell us about this record? It starts with a song called The Road I'm On. Right now with Amazon, if you do the album, you get The Road I'm On with you it. You pre-ordered it right. with the record. And The Road I'm On is just a simple salute to very much like if you had the album Fresh Horses, there was a song called The Old Stuff on it. Just talked about touring. And The Road I'm On just talks about the road I'm on now as an entertainer, as a human being, where we're at. Because for me, I think music should give you a piece of the artist with everything that's out there. You should know something more about the artist once you hear a song. At Notre Dame, you played something, the Music 101 trilogy, (laughs) which was a Gabe Dixon song, Live Again, and then also Let It Be in Hey Jude. Yes. How'd this come to be called the Music 101 trilogy? What it is is uh, we're going to launch a new tradition. We started at Notre Dame. We play colleges. We're going to do this thing called Music 101. And we're going to make sure the kids in the audience do not forget the greatest artists and the greatest songs. It's kind of feel like it's our job. So what we'll do is we'll mix something new with something old that kind of ties together. So for us, Gabe Dixon, everybody here in town knows him. Great session player, great singer. He was an artist for a little bit. But you can tell his love and passion is in songwriting. He was with Paul McCartney for a run. And then legend has it that Paul asked him to stay on. And he said, man, I just really want to pursue songwriting and do my own thing. I don't care who you are. If Sir Paul asked you to stay on, I would say, yeah. What do you want me to sell my family? Yeah. I you know, whatever I need to do. Yes. And this kid was so hell bent on just creating music. That that's what he does. And he's fabulous. He's a great artist. So it starts with uh, Live Again off him. But when you play Live Again, if you ever heard the song, it's Billy Joel meets Sir Paul McCartney head on. It's gorgeous. But it only lent itself to Let It Be and Hey Jude. Pretty cool. 
but that is the one and only time probably will ever be played. So the Music 101 trilogy, then we could maybe get Ashley McBride's Guy Going Nowhere with Bob Seger's Turn, Turn the Page. page. And other, that's the you. way it's going to work. Yeah. So our job is to just, I want to say educate, but the truth is when songs are so great, I think the kids already know them. It's just to make sure that they understand what a great song is, what great artists are. And uh, my thing is, if we go, hey, you know what? We already know that. That's a lesson I don't think you can learn enough. Something you brought up a little while ago when you were talking about the sanctity of the album. Yes. What's the song you want to hear? Gun to your head. What's the song you want to hear? So let me ask you, Mm -hmm. since you brought it up, what's the one you want to hear? At any time. We've mentioned a couple of them. Turn the page. Ricky Skaggs got a song called Two Highways. George Strait has a song called I Can't See Texas From Here. The crazy thing, though, is we take a 15-minute break. You come back, gun to your head, tell me the songs. There'll be three different ones. Hmm. 15 minutes later, there'll be three different ones. That's what I love. I just love music, and I love where it comes from. So when you hear Girl Going Nowhere or Pretty Maids All in a Row or Prince's Musicology, all these things come into your head as just great music that have kind of built and defined you as a person. I would have to ask somebody who's not in music for a living to see if music means the same thing to them, if it's a fabric of their life that they can point to. I'm sitting here in this room staring at a young lady that I've known since she was a kid. And even though she's in the music business, she's not an artist herself. But songs have built every minute of her life. When she remembers her mother, she'll remember certain artists. You remember your dad, you remember certain artists. And I think that's the power of music. So here's the bottom line. Record labels own the music. Artists do not. So that's the first mistake we commonly make is, oh, my God, why did that artist allow his song to be on an X-Lax commercial? Well, we as artists don't own our music. Very rarely does that happen. So it's the record labels. So it's more like a commodity or a piece of product for them. But for us, the listener, it's everything. So when you say, what's the future of music and music business? It's still always going to be a business. It's still going to be product that's traded. But for us as a listener... I think it's the gospel. And I would love to see music treated like that. But you understand why it can't, because art and business can't live together. <laughs> you lucky, sometimes they do. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, the high road's a little too high to take. I want to walk a mile easy way. Want to take a page from your game. You know, before we go, I just want to ask you one question. Yes, sir. I'm pulling out Anthology Part 3, a lovely book that I've mentioned a few times. And we open up, uh, for those of you uh, listening home, I'm going to open up to a page with a picture of Garth with one of his first uh, bands, Santa, Santa, Santa Fe. Fe. Yeah. Tell me about that mustache, Garth. Don't you love it, man? Okay, so this must have been when Sandy, right about when Sandy and I got married, because in all our wedding pictures, I have that mustache. You do? Oh, yeah. And Sandy hated it. I didn't know anybody that liked it. Well, um, yeah, I'm not surprised you didn't. <laughs> what were you thinking? And then why did you keep it? <laughs> Are you kidding me, man? It's cool. Look at that. Is that not cool? It's the ugliest thing on the planet. I would vaguely describe it as you look like the cable guy, but also like you're going to steal something out of my house. Yeah, amen. Amen. That was us, man. But everybody in that band had facial hair, so I had to be cool, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> that is a great picture, man. So the kid next to me, Mike Skinner, when you say you go to school, he's one of my years of education. This kid was a self-taught fiddle player that played kind of Southern rock guitar. So when I heard a fiddle playing with this kind of muscle, it made sense that I love George Strait and I love Chris Ledoux, but I also love Boston. Can these two musics live together? Two songs in Garth Brooks's career, if people are familiar with Garth Brooks's career, Alabama Clay and a song called uh, Fit for a King. Alabama Clay was off the original album, Fit for King, off Sevens. Both of them have the hardest electric guitar I've ever heard in country music, and they're both the most traditional country music songs that I've ever cut in my career. So uh, Mike Skinner was the bridge that showed me you could put those two things together. We could go through here. Jed Lindsay, Tom Skinner, Troy Jones, they all taught me stuff. I'm really lucky that anybody that I have sat and talked with has been a, a, a founding block that has built my life. And the great thing is, 20 stories later or 30 stories later in the career, as far as years go, I'm still laying down foundational block. There are things that changed my life that I get to do in music and fine, which makes me think things that last forever usually take forever to build. So my job is to do everything I can do while I'm living and breathing. And if I've done my job right, a hundred years after I'm gone, hopefully the music, I don't care about the artist, the music lives on. Garth, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Inside the Studio is an iHeartRadio original podcast. This episode was written and hosted by me, Joe Levy. We'd like to give a big thanks to Garth Brooks and, of course, Pearl Records. And you can follow Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.